0: All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned one to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Before we go to our study of the word this morning, let's ask God's guidance on our time in his word. Father, we thank you for your word, for the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as the written word, which is as Paul tells us, the mind of Christ. Fathers, we come together to reflect upon your word. May we be reminded that this is your instruction to us, your guidance to us, that we may come to understand how things truly are in your creation and not how th- things should be in terms of how we wish they were. Father, help us to understand that we are here as believers with mission, And that mission is to serve you and to make disciples of all nations. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, open our eyes to the areas of Scripture we study today and how this applies in our own thinking and in our own living. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. While you are turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, the civics lesson for this morning is that the state senator from this area is Dwayne Bohack. That suddenly came to my mind. I've run into Duane three times in the last two or three months at different functions, so uh, I thought that might be a good thing to have him come uh, come over here and speak speak to the men's group. So I'll try to see if we can make that happen this next uh, this next Saturday morning. We have been studying in Matthew chapter 10, and since I've been gone for a couple of weeks and had time to think about this a little bit, I want to do a little bit of review so that it sort of brings us back to where we were, and hopefully I'll actually cover uh, some some new ground this morning. Uh, this is a tremendous passage of Scripture because it presents a challenge to us, and it certainly presented a challenge to the 12 disciples. Jesus is giving instruction to his 12 disciples as 10:1 tells us and this is uh, his instruction here is one that is specifically targeted to those 12 in that particular situation how do we know that We know that because the Lord told them that they were only to take the message to the Jewish people, only to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They were not to go to the Gentiles. That changed later on. But that's important for helping us to understand the meaning of the passage or what is called interpretation. Interpretation has to do with what the passage means. It's in, in its original context, its original situation. Application is how principles there might relate to us. And so this section focuses the disciples' attention on the fact that they are now in a battle, but not just any battle. They are in the central battle of all time, the central battle of all history which we often refer to as the angelic conflict. The application for us coming out of our study of this section is that like them, we too are disciples. Some things here don't directly apply to us because they were, as Jesus originally gave them and as I pointed out, they are designed for those who will encounter persecution during the uh, during the tribulation period, but nevertheless, there is a foreshadowing or foretaste of that in, intense future period of persecution, uh, even in the church age we don 't get off scot free one of the um, one of the things I constantly run into and have most of my uh, adult life as a as a Christian and as a student of the word is that people who and theologians who ought to know better who do not agree with a dispensational interpretation of the Scripture or... Uh, they do not agree with a pre-tribulation rapture, often accuse those of us who are dispensationalists and hold to a pre-trib rapture that we're just teaching people a form of escapism, that they're not going to encounter uh, suffering, that they're not going to encounter persecution or tribulation or testing in this life. And that's so far from the truth. It's just a terrible ad hominem argument where they misrepresent. It's a straw man argument where they misrepresent what we believe. Scripture clearly teaches, and the early church all the way up through the modern church clearly encounters hostility in the world. We face persecution. And even though we live in a historical bubble in this country, because for the last 300 years, We have been free from overt persecution, government hostility, or legalized uh, persecution, torture, uh, imprisonment uh, of Christians. Nevertheless, we do not get out of this life scot-free." As Peter points out in 1 Peter chapter 4, we should not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us. And he's not talking about the tribulation, he's talking about things that happen in this life. So as Jesus informed the disciples and warned them of the coming opposition, hostility, and persecution, we need to recognize that the same thing is true for us in our lives and our experience. We are in a battle. We are in a cosmic conflict, a cosmic war. And if you are alive, if you are breathing, whether you are a Christian or not, you are in this war. And it is the war of the ages that centered on the greatest battle of the conflict, which was that which occurred on Golgotha when the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins And won for us the victory over Satan and delivered us from the slavery to sin. And as Paul points out in Galatians 6.1, this gives us, this gives us the freedom that we have in Christ, the liberty that we have in Christ. But everyone needs to recognize that you are in this battle, believer or non-believer. And in this battle, there are two great groups of casualties. That first group of casualties are those who have never trusted in Jesus as Messiah. They have never believed on him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises that God would send the seed of the woman, that initial proto-evangelium, that first A hint of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That first hint that is followed through with prophecy after prophecy after prophecy throughout the Old Testament. And this is God's plan of redemption that we would be saved through a substitute who would do everything, would carry our sins for us so that we would not have to suffer uh, for them. We're reminded of passages like Genesis 22 when God told A- Abram to test him, to test him because God had promised that his line would go through his seed, his only son Isaac. And so the test wa- was that has Abraham realized yet that, that whatever happens to Isaac, Isaac is going to live because God promised that the descendants of Abraham would come through Isaac. And so it was a test of faith, one of many that, that Abraham uh, faced. But this time, Abraham got the point. The writer of Hebrews tells us he recognized that even if he carried through with God's command to take the life of Isaac, God would raise him from the dead because God was faithful to his promise. And just as as Abraham was going to uh, slit Isaac's throat, God stayed his hand and provided instead a substitute, a ram that was caught in the bushes that would be the substitute sacrifice for Isaac, teaching the principle of substitutionary payment for, for sin. And then we come to the Exodus account. And uh, I mentioned this a few minutes ago as we went through the Lord's table. But at the Passover, the lamb that had been evaluated and tested, that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, that lamb was to be without spot or blemish. It was a picture of the sinlessness of Christ. And that lamb was to be taken and was to have its throat slit. And the blood of the lamb was to be put on the doorposts and on the crosspiece, the lintel of the doors of the house. And when uh, death came that night, it would pass over that house. That's the meaning of the word Passover. That's where we get that term, that the angel, uh, excuse me, that the death would pass over, the Lord would pass over, and everyone in that house, because they were covered by the blood, because they were covered by the sacrificial substitutionary death of that lamb, they would live. The firstborn would live and not be taken. And then we have in the Mosaic Law the uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take two goats, and he would place uh, each of his hands on the head of, of those two goats, and he would recite the sins of the nation as he's transferring those sins to those innocent goats that were without spot or blemish. One goat was taken to the altar to be sacrificed, and to die as a substitute for the sins of the people. And the other goat was then taken out into the wilderness as far as it could so that that goat could never ever find its way back to civilization as a picture of the fact that God has removed our sins as far as, from us as the east is from the west so that those sins are completely and totally forgiven and forgotten by God and that the, the nation Israel could move forward. This again is a picture of the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. And then we go all the way up to the great prophecies of the servant of Yahweh in Isaiah 53 that depicts that this servant would be a substitute for our sins, the prediction that this servant would die in our place. In Isaiah 53, it's, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so once again, we see that that is the issue. So the first type of casualty are those who have never trusted in Christ as Savior, and they will bear the eternal condemnation and eternal punishment in the lake of fire. The second type of casualty is the believer who never gets it. The believer who never understands that he's not just saved so that he can live for eternity in heaven, but he is saved for a purpose. He is bought with a price so that he is now to serve God as his representative upon the earth. In the church age, we have been given the privilege to be ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ and to represent the throne of God before men. We are not here to serve uh, temporal ends and temporal needs. But we get all caught up in all of that, don't we? We get uh, caught up in our jobs and our careers and pursuing education, raising our families, and we forget that the purpose that we're here isn't to raise our families. It isn't to excel in our jobs and our career. It isn't to pursue excellence in academic achievement. That may all be part of it, but the ultimate thing that organizes and structures everything in our life is that we are here for the purpose to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and to fulfill the great commission, which is to to make disciples. And unfortunately, there are many who never get it, and the Apostle Paul tells us that they become enemies of the cross. They fall away from grace. That doesn't mean they lose their salvation, but they've forgotten all about grace, that they don't have salvation anymore. I mean, excuse me, they don't have a spiritual life anymore. They're not living uh, for the Lord anymore, they're in carnality, and the scripture speaks of that as death. It's a death-like existence. They are still born again, they're still justified, they still have eternal life, but they are walking like the dead. They are spiritual zombies, and they are not experiencing the kind of life that God has for us. And at the judgment seat of Christ, where there is a time coming, where we will all be accountable, to the Lord. And for church age believers that comes immediately after the rapture of the church when we are face to face with the Lord and there we will face the Lord at what is called the Bemis seat or the judgment seat of Christ and all of our works will be evaluated. Some that we have done as we have walked by the Spirit have eternal value. And on that basis, we will receive reward. And they're referred to metaphorically as gold, silver, and precious stones in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. But there are other works in our life that will be burned up. They're referred to as wood, hay, and straw. And Paul says at the end of his description of the judgment seat of Christ that if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, not the loss of salvation, but he, because he goes on to say he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So these are the two great casualties in the angelic conflict. And, of course, I don't think anybody here wants to be a casualty in the angelic conflict. In contrast to those two categories of people, We have those who are going to be successful in the Christian life. They're a different kind of soldier in this cosmic conflict. Scripture describes them in the Gospels as disciples, a word we don't run into too much afterward. But a disciple is not simply someone who has accepted Jesus as Messiah, but is someone who is dedicated to following him as their teacher, as their guide, as the one who is the... Uh, sovereign Lord over their life. Uh, Lordship salvation misrepresents that and says you need to accept Jesus as Lord of your life to be saved. Salvation is a free gift. We don't um, earn it. We don't deserve it. It is given to us freely. But after we are saved, the challenge before us is are we willing to step to the plate and become a disciple? In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters, seven evaluation reports to those seven churches. And at the end of each of those reports, there is a promise that is given to a group called overcomers. The word there for an overcomer in the Greek uh, is a the verb nikao from the from the noun Nike as it's pronounced in Greek, but has been perverted into uh, the modern uh, patois as Nike for the goddess of victory. That's why you Nike shoes are named for victory. And so that's related to this idea. These overcomers are the believers in the church age who are victorious over the world and over the devil in terms of their spiritual life and their spiritual growth. And Jesus is addressing the 12 because they are the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles and prophets, talking about not Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament church age prophets are the foundation of the church. And so Jesus is uh, addressing them in terms of what is expected if you are going to be a disciple. And that's the challenge before us. Are we simply going to be a believer or are we going to be a disciple? Are we going to pursue excellence in the Christian life? So the Bible talks about this as a war. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 depicts that war, that we are fighting against an invisible enemy. We are not fighting against flesh and blood, but we are fighting against forces that are unseen, the armies of Satan, and uh, which involves all of the demons. And so at salvation, when you trust Christ as your Savior, what happens is that you are immediately inducted into the Lord's army. We are adopted, Scripture says, into the family of God, but that means we're now in this intensified conflict. When you were a failure, when you were a casualty, it didn't really matter. But now that you are a member of God's royal family, you have a target on your back whether you like it or not. You can run, but you can't hide. And the issue for us now is whether or not we're going to accept that challenge to be disciples. And so we have this metaphor, this military metaphor that runs through the Scripture as well as athletic metaphors to describe this contest that we're in. And it's not a contest against each other. It's really a contest in terms of can we do the best that we can do in terms of accepting the challenge of discipleship from the Lord. Scripture says that at that instant of faith we're adopted into God's royal family And we had changed sides in the conflict. We have been transferred from the power of darkness, Scripture says, to the kingdom of His beloved Son, uh, Colossians 1.13 and Acts 26.18. And so from that point on, once we enter into that new position, the challenge is before us. It's a daily challenge. Each day we wake up and we have to decide, am I going to live today for my agenda or am I going to live today for the Lord's agenda? and many times during the day we may have to revisit that decision depending on how things are going. Now, we enter into this conflict, and so we became, become members of what we refer to metaphorically as the Lord's army. Now, like most military organizations, there are basically two types of people in the military. You have those that are just... Uh, just uh, punching the clock, as it were, and marking time until their enlistment is up. They get their veterans' benefits, much like the fact that every believer gets eternal life. Every believer is going to have a resurrection body. Every believer is going to be glorified. Uh, Every believer is going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, for the old things have passed away. But on the other hand, there's another option. And that option takes us above and beyond the basics that everybody gets at salvation. These are referred to in the Scripture as rewards. And if you look at the last couple of verses in Matthew chapter 10, you see that that this is, in fact, what Jesus has been talking about as he's been challenging his disciples in these verses. He says in verse 41, "...he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet..." shall receive a prophet's what? Gift. No? Reward. A prophet, and he says he receives a righteous man, in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. So this passage is not talking about salvation and what we must do to be saved. It's talking about rewards and rewards for excellent service and rewards for uh, uh, taking on the challenge of uh, being a disciple and pursuing the goal of being an overcomer, a victor. Now, in human terms, we might compare this uh, to uh, special uh, units within the military. The army has airborne, ranger, special forces. The Marine Corps has recon and force recon. The Navy has the SEALs. I'm sure the Air Force has something, but I'm not familiar with it. But they all have these special units. And these, this is comparable to those who are disciples, those who are going to be victors, is that we don't want to just be uh, a, uh, take on a regular role in the Lord's army. We want to pursue excellence with everything that we have, and that demands uh, special training above and beyond. It involves uh, discipleship. Uh, scripture teaches and from this point on we're going to see Jesus emphasizing discipleship more and more as he challenges the individual disciples. Now, we hear a lot about discipleship in the modern evangelical church, and this, is, this has been a buzzword, and a lot of churches uh, have converted this into uh, small group ministries. Now, I don't have anything against small group ministries, but that's not the pattern. In fact, Jesus establishes this with his 12, but we don't see that kind of a pattern going on into Acts. In fact, You don't even find the word or the verb disciple to make a disciple anywhere in the book of Acts. It simply means to train people and to teach people, and it doesn't mean it has to be done in a small group. This really came out of some campus ministries uh, about the time of World War II. There may have been a few precedents before that, but after that, that became a pattern, and, and I believe this was a great mistake because it fit everything into a cultural box. And so it denies the fact that a lot of the discipleship that you saw taking place in Acts was one apostle teaching several thousand especially in Jerusalem in the in the early days of the church it wasn't just this kind of an idea of a small group but what it means to be a disciple is someone who takes on the discipline of their teacher and so it strictly relates to study but it it's not just taking coming and going through academic study but it's absorbing the philosophy, the mentality, everything on the part of the teacher and making it our own so that we, uh, we imitate the teacher in our, in our life. So this is what the Lord is talking about in terms of, of discipleship. Later on, he'll talk about the importance of counting a cost. It's not like salvation, which is a free gift. In Revelation it says, take from the living water freely, but discipleship has a cost. It's a challenge. It may cost us a lot. It may cost us our personal agendas. It may cost you your ambition. It may cost you the career you've always always wanted. I know one pastor, a friend of mine, who when he graduated from college, he was and had hoped to go to medical school, and he applied at medical school of a uh, large university here in Texas, and when he was privately interviewed by the head of the admi- admissions department, he the, the head of the admissions department told him that he said, I see that you are a Christian. Well, what do you think about uh, creation and evolution? What are your beliefs? And he said that he believed in the Bible, that he believed in a young earth. He believed that God created everything in in, uh, six days and rested on the seventh and the uh, head of admissions at this school said, I will tell you this, that you will never become a doctor from this medical school because if you don't believe in, in, in evolution, you can't understand the development of viruses, you can't understand anything in bacteriology, and you'll be a failure as a doctor, and we can't allow that. So, so this is the end of your medical ambition. That's the cost of discipleship is that we have to take a stand for the Word of God and a stand for the truth no matter what it costs us in life. Discipleship takes dedication. That's another word for volition. We have to make that decision daily. And it takes perseverance. And it takes a willingness to set aside everything that we hold dear in life if it comes between us and our service to the Lord and serving his uh, His agenda for us. So the Bible calls those who are really serious about their spiritual life disciples, overcomers, and victors. And to them are promised certain awards, special awards and privileges and benefits in eternity that... Uh, go with their excellent service. We saw this uh, briefly last time when I talked about the fact that uh, Jesus promises in verse 33, uh, whoever denies me before men, uh, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. But that verse began in verse 32, uh, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. And this is referenced in Revelation 3-5 that as part of special awards as all believers are lined up uh, before the judgment seat of Christ, those who are overcomers are singled out and praised for their uh, excellent service and they're identified as overcomers in revelation 3 5 jesus says i will confess them which means i will praise them before the father in heaven for their excellent uh, service so this is what jesus is holding out to the twelve but he promises that if you want to be a disciple if you're going to carry out the ministry that i'm giving you you're going to face opposition and you're going to face uh, challenges And that will be true of all those who follow you. And so he gives this warning. And these warnings that we see from verse 16 on also uh, portend certain trends that will take place during the church age, even though their ultimate fulfillment will not come until the tribulation period. We see that because verse 22 says those who endure to the end will be saved. That's also repeated in Matthew Uh, chapter 24 and is a reference to the end of the tribulation period in Matthew chapter 24 verse 13. And in verse 23, the reference is to the coming of the Son of Man. That comes at the end of the tribulation, uh, period. And so as we studied all of that, we see that this, the, the interpretation of the passage and its fulfillment comes in the tribulation. But we see that during the church age, these trends uh, continue. And so let me just remind you of some of these warnings. Back in verse 17, Jesus said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. And this, in fact, happened in the early church. And the one who was most responsible for this was the man called Saul of Tarsus, who was converted in Acts chapter 9, accepted Jesus as Messiah and became known as the Apostle Paul. But before he trusted in Jesus as Messiah, he was responsible for going into synagogues, for arresting, for whipping, for torturing, and even bringing to death those who had accepted Jesus as Messiah. In the next verse, in verse 18, We read, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony uh, to them and and to the Gentiles. And this is also seen in the book of Acts towards the end when Paul is arrested in Jerusalem and then he is taken to Caesarea Philippi and there he gave his testimony to the Roman governors Felix and Festus as well as to King Herod Agrippa and his wife uh, Berenice. Uh, so they will be delivered up, or she was kind of a sister, wife, whatever, uh, soap opera going on in the uh, family of Herod. Uh, third, we see a warning here that, um, that they would be betrayed by their own family members. Verse 21, "...brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death." Now, we don't see examples of that in the book of Acts. It could have happened. It's possible. But that will take place in the future. It's happened in the past. It happened under Soviet Russia where the children were taught to betray their parents if they were uh, Christians, if they were worshiping God, and that took place there. It took place in, in uh, Soviet China. It's probably taken place in communist North Korea. So these things have taken place over the course of history, and uh, it could happen to us. That is why the Lord says that we have to put him before the love of our parents, and the love of our children. He is the, He is the priority. So let me remind you of some other things that Jesus says here. He says that they would be hated for Jesus' sake. He warns this in verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. That's just what we want to hear, isn't it? that 's one of those messages on Sunday morning that leaves you f- leaving feeling warm and fulfilled and and uplifted that when you are following Jesus, people are not going to welcome you with open arms people are going to reject you, and this may happen to people you care very much about it may happen with your with your family members but Jesus is saying that we are not any different or to not expect any different uh, treatment than our Teacher, our master. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. They hated Jesus. We should not expect anything less than to be hated if we are going to line up with him. Furthermore, they not only hated him, but they called him the the agent of the devil, that he did what he did under the uh, power of Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a term related back to the worship of Baal in the Old Testament, but it had come to be applied by the Jews of Jesus' time to the head of the, of the fallen angels, to Satan himself. And so they're basically saying of Jesus that, that you're not good. You claim to be righteous, but you're evil. You are actually the devil's mouthpiece, and those who follow you, They're followers of the devil as well. It's it's a complete reversal of polarities. Good is called evil, and evil is called good. And we have not seen that in our lifetime in this country. It happens in other places. If you are in an Islamic country and you are a Christian, then you are identified with Satan. And who knows, that may come to a theater near you very soon with the way uh, things are going in this world. In fact, I suspect that before uh, some of us die, that we may see overt opposition and persecution in this life. Why is it that people hate us? It's because we remind them of their rebellion against God. Even if you don't ever witness to them, if they know you are a Christian it rankles them, it irritates them, it, it, it makes them angry because they know you believe in absolutes. I believe that one of the reasons that, um, that George W. Bush was so vilified by the left is because after 9-11, he said, these are the forces of evil. See, the left has rejected absolutes. In, in, in leftist philosophy, in, in, in postmodernism and modernism, you can't talk in terms of absolute categories of good and evil because you've rejected God, therefore you have no basis to talk about good or evil anymore. And as soon as he came out with this absolute view of right and wrong and black and white, this immediately angered the left and they hated him because that reminded them of something that they were desperately trying to suppress in unrighteousness, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.16, that we are to those who are not saved an aroma of death, so that when you go around your family, they smell death, not your death, but their death, and they don't want to think about it. When you are at work, and it's known that you are a Christian, there are some there who are going to uh, be hostile to you because to, to, to them you smell like death, They're death. They don't want to be reminded about that. We live in a nation where we are more and more painted as the enemy. We are judgmental. We're hateful towards homosexuals. We are hateful towards people who believe there are other ways to heaven. We are accused of hate speech because we just believe that there is only one way to heaven. And we remind people that their way is not the way, that their truth is not the truth, and their life is a sham. And because of that, they are hostile to us. And this is only going to increase. We learn that as we live as as believers, we're going to face two kinds of opposition. Mostly in this country, we've only faced one kind of opposition, one kind of persecution, and that is a covert persecution. Overt persecution is when family members reject us, turn us over to government authorities for uh, torture and for arrest. Um, when uh, we are rejected by uh, schools, by employers, by jobs when we are open to anything from mild rejection to ridicule to opposition to open hostility and then even the most extreme forms of physical imprisonment, torture, and even death. But most of us face the quieter covert forms of persecution. We are silently ridiculed. Somebody just doesn't give us a promotion because they know we're a Christian or we're not accepted into certain schools. Several years ago, Dr. Steve Austin, who's going to be leading us on our uh, raft trip through the Grand Canyon in May and who spoke here as part of the Chafer Conference six or seven years ago, uh, t- told me about his uh, graduate career as a doctoral student at the University of Pennsylvania. During that time, he could not let it be known that he was a creationist. He wrote a number of creationist articles for the Institute of Creation Research under a pseudonym. If it had become known that at University of Pennsylvania that he believed in a literal biblical creation, then his funding would have dried up. He would have immediately been been, uh, been kicked out of the program. I had a, a, a song leader in the church I pastored in Irving back in the 80s who was getting his, uh, master's degree in paleontology at SMU, a putatively Christian school. And he told me that if it were known there that he was a Christian and a creationist, then he would be kicked out of the program. His scholarship would suddenly disappear and uh, opportunities to advance, to participate in critical or required seminars would suddenly disappear and he would no longer be able to uh, achieve his job. Being a Christian, being a disciple and pursuing ministry for the Lord is never easy. In the 1840s, the first Presbyterian minister to go west of the Mississippi was a man by the name of Asa Turner. He was the first to go into what is now the modern state of Iowa. And in 1843, he wrote to the American Home Mission Society that he needed help with the gospel ministry uh, and teaching scripture. He got a response from 12 Andover Seminary students who were later known as the Iowa Seven, so they lost a few. Uh, Anyway, he wrote a response to them when he heard that they were forming this uh, Iowa band, and he said some interesting things in his letter. He said to them, quote, I'm glad that there is a reinforcement in ministry that is talked of, but I hope that it will not end in just talk. But I fear, don't come here expecting a paradise. Come prepared to expect small things, rough things, Lay aside all your dandy whims, boys learning college. Take a few lessons from your grandmothers before you come. Get clothes that are firm, durable, something that will go through the hazel brush without tearing. And get wives of the old Puritan stamp, those who can pale a cow and churn the butter. And be proud of a jean dress or a checkered apron. But it's no use to answer any more of your questions, for I expect to see none of you west of the Mississippi River as long as I live. The ministry is not easy, whether it's professional or whether you're just a non-professional involved in teaching Sunday school or being involved in a local church ministry. It's never easy. Second Corinthians 11, Paul says this. He says, I am more in reference to accusations of being being a false apostle. He says, uh, in comparison to the false ministers, he says, in labors, I'm more abundant in stripes, that's in whippings, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I receive 40 stripes minus one, that's 40 lashes they, they were limited by the Mosaic law to 40, so they only gave 39 to make sure they didn't miscount. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of our own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I skipped a verse. Verse 25, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Verse 27, he goes on to say, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often. Uh, fastings almost sounds too good. Just starving. He didn't have any food often. In cold and nakedness. Besides the other things. What other things? Just dealing with Christians. Lovely sheep besides the other things who come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Jesus is warning the twelve that being aligned with him means opposition. But then Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? Because the Lord's going to take care of us. He's going to supply our need because we are the ones who are carrying out his will. He's going to take care of that which we need to accomplish the task. It may not be providing us with what we would like. But when our agenda is God's agenda and we are completely sold out to that, then he is going to supply our need. And Jesus reminded us and reminded them in verse 28, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I pointed this out last time that hell there is a translation of the Greek word Gehenna. And Gehenna was a place where the uh, uh, in Judah that they would roast their babies alive in the fiery arms of the idols of Moloch. And because of that sin of idolatry, God brought judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah, and he removed them. And when the Babylonians defeated the kingdom of Judah, there were tens of thousands of Jews who were slaughtered and buried in the Valley of Gehenna, which became known as the Valley of Slaughter. It was a picture not of eternal punishment, but a picture of God's discipline upon his people for their disobedience. And so what Jesus is warning there is that, uh, don't fear the punishment that will come when they are taking your life. But if you have dedicated your life to serving the Lord and you go back on that, fear the Lord who will bring judgment and discipline against you, just as He did the ancient ancient Judahites. When I read this, I think about uh, the the situation known as uh, uh, under under Bloody Mary. Mary. Uh, the Queen of England during the time of the Tudors. Uh, she w- reigned for two y- two short years, thankfully, between Edward and her sister Elizabeth. And during that time, she burned alive at the stake over 300 Protestants in the fields of Smithfield. And two of those that were most, most notable were named uh, Thomas Cranmer and Ridley. And uh, Ridley, when he was burning and his body was lighting up like a torch, he turned to Cramner and he said, uh, Courage, my brother, because the fire that is lit by us today will burn throughout England. And Cramner, who had been the archbishop under, under Henry VIII, had been forced under torture to recant his Protestant convictions and to sign that recantation. And when he was there uh, being burned alive at the stake, he held out his right hand that had signed that recantation. And he said, he said, uh, he called his right hand a traitor and watched it catch on fire and burn as he sang hymns to the glory of God recognizing that he wanted to stand uh, as a faithful servant before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And this is what the Lord is providing here, and the challenge to us is whether or not we are going to accept the challenge to be, dis- be to be disciples. There is great reward. And next time, when we come back, we will get into the next section. I didn't think I would make it. I wanted to do that review. We will get into the next section dealing with... Um, what Christ expects of us, starting in verse 34, and especially ending with verse 39, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and reflect upon uh, your challenge to us to be disciples, to press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ, not looking back, not regretting it, but recognizing that what we are giving our lives to is, is, has eternal value that will resonate down through the eons of eternity. Father, we recognize that what we're talking about here is not getting into heaven. We're Getting into heaven is just a matter of a free gift, the free gift of eternal life, that all we have to do is trust in you and trust in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary work on the cross and we will have everlasting life. But there's another uh, another issue, and that is now that we're saved, then what? Now that we're saved, are we going to press on? Are we going to become disciples? Are we going to make uh, your word the most important aspect of our life? And as we face this coming new year, This is a challenge before us, an opportunity as many of us uh, take stock as to where we are and what our priorities are and what we're giving our lives to, that we might uh, reflect even more about this, that that perhaps this year we're going to take up that challenge, that we're not going to just be thankful that we're going to spend eternity in heaven, but that we want to pursue excellence and that we want to pursue uh, the prize, run as if we can win. Uh, be victors in that uh, in that contest, as Paul says in in First Corinthians. And Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us that this year will be a year that makes a difference as we take our spiritual life seriously. And now, uh, Father, we pray that if anyone here has never trusted in Christ as Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so, knowing that at the instant that they believe, Jesus died for their sins, they will have everlasting life. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.